have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and it's a story that uh, many of us have read. But I want to read the first 10 verses of Matthew chapter 28 and remind you of this cool story. After the Sabbath, and so in Israel, the Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday night, and then it ends about sundown on Saturday night. So Friday, Jesus is executed on trumped-up charges. Then throughout the day, Saturday during Sabbath, it's silent. And then it says, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said he would. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into the north country, into the Galilee. There he will, you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings. Jesus said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go north to the Galilee, where they will see me. In all four Gospels, so there's four stories, biographies of the life of Jesus. In all four of the Gospels, people respond to the truth of Jesus going to the cross Dying, being buried, and then conquering sin and death by rising from the dead, never to die again. And there's stories of transformation all in the four Gospels, and then of course in the book of Acts and on, all throughout the course of the early church and as the church began to develop. And so you see people's lives being transformed by the grace of Jesus. Just like Peter in the video. That is grace. Later in this service, I'm going to give you an opportunity, because I wanted to give you a heads up, for you to be touched by Jesus in the same way, to receive grace from him, to have a relationship with God that's only possible through Christ. And so if you're here and you're curious about that, I encourage you to be listening as we walk through God's word together. I want you to imagine with me that you were around about 2,000 years ago. And you've heard the rumors that Jesus is walking around all the nation of Israel. He even crosses the river at points and goes into the area of ten cities there to the east. Most of his time is spent north in the area of the Galilee, but he's down in the south country as well. And you've heard about him, and you take the opportunity to go and listen to some of his talks. And you are mesmerized by the things he's saying. No one in history, either before or since, has ever spoken like this guy. 
you're watching him and you see a person that is living life differently than everyone else. You see somebody and he's the real deal as you're watching him. Nobody has ever loved like this guy loved. And you desperately want to become one of his followers and so you leave everything. You leave your home, you leave your family, you leave your work. And your friends are saying, don't do it, you're crazy. There's little messiahs that pop up all the time throughout history. And as soon as the Romans get kind of ticked off with them, they go in there and they crush them and kill them. And you don't want to be one of those people like has happened all the time in the different parts of our country. But you don't care. Because you've heard what this guy says. And he is the guy, you are convinced he is the guy that you have been waiting for all your life. You know that all the books of the Old Testament tell you that there is a Messiah coming. A king. The Lamb of God. And you have been waiting all through history. They've talked about this in the 39 books of the Older Testament. All your life you've been waiting for him. And you believe that this Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, will change the world. And you want to be part of that. And it's an amazing adventure as you're traveling along. There are miracles taking place. People are dramatically and inexplicably healed. There's monster crowds, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people come to hear this guy. And, and you're convinced nothing can stop the momentum of this. Then one Sunday, Jesus says, let's walk up to Jerusalem. <laughs> You've got a bad feeling in the pit of your stomach about this one. And all the other people, uh, especially Peter, who always is the first one to talk, says, boy, Jesus, I don't think we should go. You know, I, I got a bad feeling about this, but he says, we're going. And so up he goes, and he's leading the disciples, and you're following along. And as you come into the city, everybody's heard about this in the whole country. They've been texting their friends. Everybody's heard. And there's monster crowds lining the streets as he's coming into the city. And they are chanting, and they are wanting to make him king. But he wasn't there to be that kind of political king. And within days, everything goes south. And I mean bad. And I mean fast. Because by Friday of that same week, what we now call Friday, the one that you have given up everything to follow is dead. And not just dead, either. He's dead as a crucified common criminal. And you stink of failure. Deep, deep despair. On Saturday, nothing is done because it's Sabbath. But on Sunday, you go to the tomb where he's been buried. And it's all very confusing. And you are overwhelmed and you're reeling and you're afraid because when you get there, the tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. The guards are completely out of it. And there's an angel sitting on this stone of whom you're deathly afraid. 
and you can barely take in what's going on. Your mind is just churning. But the angel says to you, Jesus, the one you've been looking for, the one that was crucified, he's actually not here. He is alive. He has risen from the dead, just like he said he would. Remember when he used to say this? But you didn't really take him seriously? Well, he actually fell asleep. Now go and tell everyone the good news. And you know that doing this will probably and may well cost you your life because the Romans kill people for reasons a lot more minor than this. But you don't care. You run as fast as you can. And you are telling everyone you can tell that the crucified carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus, is actually the master of the universe. And Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. I was thinking about this as I was reading this story, which I've read a few times in my life, and uh, I'm thinking to myself, what would have been the first words out of their mouth as the ladies were sharing this good news? You know, there's a tradition in the church, which we've actually practiced once already earlier in the service, and we will later in the service, and it's been around for a long, long time, where people will say, Christ is risen, or he is risen, and everyone responds with, he is risen indeed. So somebody will say, he is risen, and the crowd will respond with, he's risen indeed. Now, not only is that an absolutely true statement, but it's a beautiful expression of that truth. But I'm thinking to myself, on the first Easter when I'm reading this story, um, I have a feeling that it would not have been their response to the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead. I don't think it would have been quite so polished. So I'm thinking it would have been, I'm just guessing here, but I'm guessing it might have been more along the lines of, you know, Jesus, the guy that we, we've been following all this time, the carpenter, the rabbi, guess what? He's really alive. He's raised from the dead. And I think the people would have responded along the lines of, wow, wow. Because wow is what we say when something unexpected turns our world upside down. Didn't see that coming. And I don't know how to take it all in. I don't know how to process this. As far as I know, in every language, the word wow in some form exists. And I think they would have, I don't think they would have had the polished response. I think they would have said, wow. So what I want to do is just take a few minutes to talk to you about wow. Because I think that idea has something to teach us. The reality is, when you think about life, when you think about our world, there's just a series of wows. And some of them are pretty big, some of them are pretty small. You know, Alexander Graham Bell, more than 100 years ago, invents the telephone. People go, wow. The Wright brothers get in this machine and all of a sudden human beings can fly. Wow. Frederick Banting, Canadian and... Later, John McLeod, another Canadian in 1921, discover insulin, and people with diabetes, their life is changed. And, and they're going, wow, thank you. Neil Armstrong steps on the moon, wow. You're there for the first, for the birth of your children, wow. You walk on the Great Wall of China, wow, this is magnificent. You meet that girl, that special girl, and she says yes to your proposal, and you go, wow. 
every life has some wow moments. Birth and then death. And like I said, some of them are bigger than others. But what about what I would call the great wow? And of course, I'm talking about the resurrection of Christ. Because if that's true, you may not believe it's true, but if it is true, that is the greatest wow in the history of the world. There's never been a greater wow if it's true. So I want to talk to you about three truths that are associated with the great wow. And the first one is just that, that the resurrection really happened. You know, there's this idea that's floating around that you hear out in the world and sometimes sadly in the church or what people consider, you know, they have this idea that this is a church and yet they think this way. And this idea is floating around that, you know, well, I'm guessing Jesus probably existed. He's probably a historical figure. I'm guessing he was probably a pretty good guy. I'm, I've heard that he was a pretty moral teacher, you know. I really don't know what he taught, but I've heard that he was a pretty moral guy. I, I've heard that this, I can't remember what it was called again, I think it's called the Sermon on the Mount, that there was some really good material in there, but, you know, I have no recollection of what that might be, or I've never even read that stuff. But the idea accompanying that kind of thinking is, this all happened on the natural human level and that when jesus did die people just kind of wanted to keep you know they wanted to keep the idea of him alive because you know he was good and he kind of motivated us and it's really sad that he's gone so let's come up with this story of the resurrection but it was all symbolic now let me just say for a second if you've ever read the bible you know that the Bible does not treat the resurrection of Christ as symbolic. If you've ever read it, you know that the writers of the New Testament lived in light of the truth that they believed he rose from the dead. That the resurrection was not just a pleasant, inspirational idea about the power of hope. It actually took place. And that the idea of it just being symbolic, if you're looking at the Bible, you've missed it completely. And you know what? Some really, really educated people miss it completely. Completely. And they present all through, if you read the scripture, whether you believe it or not, if you read the, the scripture, it's extremely clear, as clear as the noise on your face, that they present it as something that literally happened. And we know this because they were prepared to stake their life on this truth. We saw this on Wednesday night, if you were here, we watched the movie The Case for Christ, which is the life story of a guy named Lee Strobel, who was a lawyer and was, uh, wrote for the Chicago Tribune. And he wrote the legal column for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, he spent a segment of his life consulting experts all over the world, looking at the issue of the resurrection from every conceivable angle, and his entire posture for the whole course of it was to debunk what he considered the myth of the resurrection. And when he had looked at the evidence, and I quote from him now, there's an avalanche of historical support 
for the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, you can read a lot of books. There's many people that have spilled a lot of ink about this. You can read books like the Oxford, from the Oxford scholar, Dr. Richard Bauman, who wrote Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, or The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Dr. Gary Habermas and Dr. Michael Lacona. And these guys will lay out for you the overwhelming evidence, not only from the Bible, but from non-biblical ancient texts as well. There's nine different places historically that talk about the resurrection of Christ, that he really rose from the dead, never to die again. And we see in the Gospels, you can see how seriously they took this stuff. It was not symbolic to them. So, for example, you can read in the book of Luke, Dr. Luke, writes, and he says this in chapter 1, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have fulfilled, been fulfilled among us, just, they have, just as they've been handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it only seems good to me to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theopolis. And he writes to this guy named Theopolis, Luke and Acts. And then he concludes by saying, and I do this, Theopolis, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Whatever you think about this stuff, understand clearly it was not meant to be symbolic. The 500 plus eyewitnesses that spent 40 days with Jesus over a long period of time, individually or in small groups, paid for this belief with their jobs, with their families, with their homes, with their lives. You don't do that for something you know is not true. You don't do that for something that's just a pleasant symbolic idea. Especially individuals or small groups over a period of decades and they see what happens to the other people as they were like in the case of Peter crucified upside down. You don't allow that to happen to you for something you know is a lie. There's exquisite detail about this stuff. I could go on for days about it. But let me just give you one example. In the Gospel of Mark, it says in chapter 15, verse 21, just listen to the detail. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. See, Simon back then was a really common name. So John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, which was the first of the four biographies written about the life of Jesus, says, listen, I want to make sure we differentiate this guy so you can just, so that if you want to go talk to Simon about whether this really took place, I'm talking about the Simon from Cyrene, whose two boys are named Alexander and Rufus. You can chat with them as well if you want. And the Gospel of Mark, along with the other Gospels, every one of the Gospels have names of individuals. And so what they're saying is, listen, you don't believe me about this stuff. Go talk to the people that were involved. They're still alive. Go chat with them. And all four Gospels have the names of eyewitnesses to this stuff. Another one that was mentioned during the film on Wednesday night, which is extremely significant as well, is that in all four Gospels, the first people to see Jesus were women. 
Now, we don't think too much about that, but that was a monster deal back then because in that era and in that culture, they discriminated against women and they didn't see them as credible evidence givers. They weren't allowed to testify in a court of law and men didn't trust what they said. And so if you're trying to concoct a story about, and fabricate some symbolic idea that he rose from the dead, the last thing in the world you would do at that time in history was say that the women were the first people to see him. That would lessen the credibility, not raise it. And of course, God didn't agree with that, and that's one of the reasons he let the women be, have the privilege of being the first ones to see it. And this just, it just, it reeks of the truth. Because this is just the way it happened. Not, you know, it's not the perfect way, because it would have been better in that culture to have men see this first. But God says, no, you know, let the women see it first. And this is just the truth. So why, why is this? Because the resurrection, secondly, changed everything. It's the great wow of human history. And if it actually happened, if it's really true, it's the hinge point of all human history. And we all have these wow moments in our personal life, some more significant, some less significant. But the resurrection is a standalone split human history event, BC and AD. And I know the secularists are trying to change those terms because they want to disassociate themselves from the historical Jesus. But he split history in two, BC, AD. And God shows us by this, Jesus shows us that God is real, that God cares for you, that God is good, that God died. Not for the masses, he died for you in a very individual way. And that was the first Easter weekend. After Friday, Sabbath starts. Jesus dies around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Sabbath starts in the early evening. On Saturday, there's nothing. It's just silent. The movement is dead. Finito. And then Sunday, everything changes. And as far as I know, Christianity is the only faith that did not develop or evolve over time. One day it did not exist. The next day it completely existed. And that's because, again, whether you believe it or not, maybe you don't, I don't know. But the resurrection was a standalone event in history. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we were reading from earlier, if the, Christ, if the resurrection isn't true, Paul says, we might as well pack up and go do something else. Because all of Christianity folds in on itself if this is not true. In Matthew chapter 28 um, that we read earlier, we see that the passage says that when the women saw him, and he said greetings to them, they fall on their faces, they clasp his feet, and they worship him. On Friday and Saturday, he's just a common crucified criminal, a failed Messiah, a busted experiment. On Sunday, he's the Lord of the universe. He's the one to be worshipped. And the cross did not thwart 
to self-sacrifice all his life. In fact, it's interesting, it's the best-known symbol in the world, right? That it originally started out, the cross was seen as a curse. That's how it was viewed, to be hung on a tree. You can read about this in Deuteronomy. To be hung on a tree was humiliating, and it was a curse. And this is one of the reasons they wanted to crucify, they wanted the Romans to crucify him, because they wanted to curse him. And now it's become the best-known symbol in the world. And what is it symbolic of? It's symbolic of the fact that because of Jesus, I don't need to be afraid of death anymore. I don't need to be afraid and feeling uh, that my guilt of my sin can't be dealt with because he did deal with it. And I don't have to live in defeat. That's what it's symbolic of. Finally, the resurrection is deeply personal, really personal stuff. You know, every person in this room faces birth and death. And the Bible speaks about this. It says in Hebrews 9, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those that are waiting for him. So some are going to be waiting for him and some are going to say, no, I don't want anything to do with you, Jesus, and I won't be waiting for him. That's the implication of that. And for every person in this room, the biggest wow in your life is yet to come. The biggest wow is going to be at the moment when you take the very last breath you ever take, when you die. And in the next moment, the Bible promises you're either going to be in heaven or you are going to be living a life without God in hell. And it doesn't get any more personal than that. There is nothing more significant, I would argue, in your life than that. And hell is not God's desire for anyone. It says in 1 Peter that he's not willing that any should perish. That's not the way he's disposed. He wants you to come to Christ. And this is at the heart of why Christ sacrificed himself for you. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that your sin, very personal, don't think of the big masses. Your sin, my sin, your sin is taken care of. That Christ extends forgiveness, not to the masses, to you, to each person that would receive it. And it's a very personal choice. Nobody else can make it for you. Your mom or dad can't make it for you. Your grandma that was praying for you, that's not going to help. You know, it's great that grandma prayed for you, but you have to make the choice. And, and the promise of Scripture is that because of Jesus, God will wipe away every tear, every sickness, every sadness, every sin to each person that will choose to surrender their life to him. And it doesn't get more personal than that. To each person that will say, I've done sinful things, God. I've alienated myself from you. I'm hopelessly lost. And I ask you, based on what Jesus did, to forgive me and to cleanse me. And I receive you as Savior, and I surrender. It's a very humbling thing. Not a trivial thing, a very profound thing. I surrender my life to you. And he will come in and change your life. This is not some surface, you just pray a few words. 
this is a life commitment. And to each person that prays that way, that commits their life to Jesus that way, he saves us, he promises to walk with us each day to help us live as he would have us live and then promises eternal life. And you can receive that right now if you've never received that. So what I'm going to do in just a moment is I'm going to get everyone here to bow their head and close their eyes. And I invite and encourage you to do that. And I can see, okay, and it's a very private moment between a person and God. So we're all going to bow our heads, close our eyes, and I just want to give you an update so you know what's coming. What I'm going to do is I'll invite you to raise your hand at that point if you would like to receive Christ. And by raising your hand, you're indicating to God and to me, I'll be looking around, your desire to give your life to Christ in the manner in which I've just described it. And then I'll pray a prayer. I'll get you to pray with me. I'll pray slowly. You can pray out loud or you can pray silently if you prefer. And basically, the key elements of this prayer will be that you're admitting that you've done sinful things, that you are separated from God, that Jesus is the only one that can repair the chasm, that he's the only one by which you can be forgiven, that he did rise from the dead, and that you're asking him to save your life, and that secondly, that you're committing your life to him in its entirety, and you want to live for him the rest of your life and for all eternity. And then after you're done praying, later I'm going to ask you to go and tell someone what you've done. Remember what the women did when they saw he was alive? They ran and they told everybody. And there's something that helps confirm, that helps confirm what God has done in your life. And it's an important step to take. So go and tell the people you came with, come and talk to me. There's going to be people up at the front here. You could come and talk to them. If you come to me or to them, we'll give you a little gift. And in that, it's just some books to help you start growing in your relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to ask everyone to bow their head and close their eyes now. And uh, I'm just looking around. Everybody else is, I'm not going to embarrass you or point you out in any way, but uh, everybody's got their heads bowed and eyes closed. So if you'd like to receive Christ in the way I've described right now, just raise your hand. And show me that you'd like to do that. Okay. I see a number of people. Yeah. Just keep them up. Okay. So there's a number of people. There was several people in our first service and a number of people now. And so God has seen what you have decided to do. And so I'm going to invite you to pray with me now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. I have done sinful things. I understand I'm hopelessly lost. I believe that Jesus is the only way for my sins to be forgiven. I believe you rose from the dead. And now I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me receive you as my savior I also surrender my life to you take my life and transform it the way you want to I give you full access thank you for saving me thank you for new life in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. 